Would you bow your heads with me? Almighty God, Heavenly Father, because we are so weak that we cannot stand for a moment, and moreover our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, do not cease to attack us, will you then therefore keep and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit? so that we may firmly resist them and not go down to defeat in this spiritual war, but we remain persistent until we finally obtain the complete victory and reign together with your Son, our Lord and Protector, Jesus Christ, in your kingdom forevermore. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Luke this morning. We're going to be continuing in Luke chapter 5 today. If there's one fact that should be clear to us from the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ and from the cross of Christ, and that is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Aren't you thankful for that truth this morning? It doesn't matter whether or not you're rich or poor. In God's economy, that doesn't matter doesn't matter if you're white or black or Hispanic or Asian. Your background, your skin color, none of those things matter at the cross. Jesus died for all so that all men and women could come to faith in Jesus Christ. All that matters is that you come to Jesus in faith realizing that you're sick and coming to the great physician, the one who can heal you of your soul's sickness. That's really all that matters, is that you come as one who is sick, in need of the great physician. Jesus is able this morning, do you still believe Jesus is able to transform anyone's life? Do you still believe that in 2022? I hope so. Do you still believe Jesus is able to take the most sin-sick person and do a miracle work of transforming grace in their life and change them, transfer them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his light? I believe he's still able to do that. But you have to be willing to admit you need his grace. So this morning we're going to continue our study through the book of Luke. And one of the things that we see in the book of Luke is that Luke is showing us that with Jesus and the arrival of God's kingdom is that the social barriers that so often separate people are taken away with the arrival of Christ's kingdom. He takes away the, the economic barriers, the ethnic barriers. He destroys all of them. And he brings us together as one new body. Together. I'm grateful for that this morning. I, I always get nervous when I go somewhere and I see that everybody in the congregation looks the same way. That scares me. I'm serious. Sometimes I go to other churches and everybody dresses alike, looks alike, everybody's the same skin color, everybody has kind of the same economic background. That just makes me nervous. Because that shows me that church isn't doing much to reach the community. And that makes me nervous. 
I like to be at a place where I look out and I see people from all different backgrounds, all differences, because at the cross, all those differences are torn down. And Jesus accepts us where we're at. And it begins a work of transformation in our life. Paul said in Galatians, we're getting to Luke here in a minute, but Paul said in Galatians, he said, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Somebody should have said amen right there because that's a good spot to say amen. Luke shows us what God did. You know, in the Old Testament, God chose people like Abraham. Remember Abraham? He was just a wandering kind of nomad. God chose Abraham. He chose a shepherd boy named David. And you come to the New Testament and you find that Jesus chooses people from kind of the marginalized of society and he wants to use them for his purposes. And we're going to see that happen in Luke chapter 5 this morning. But before, again, before we get to Luke chapter 5, I got one more passage I want to remind you of. And this is all leading up to what we're going to see this morning. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you either, or me. <laughs> Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let, no, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're going to boast, boast about Jesus. That's all we have to boast about this morning, is Jesus. And so with that in mind, now look at Luke chapter 5. Because in Luke chapter 5, we learn about Jesus' calling of a despised tax collector. I spent some time this week with Levi over there. Joyce is holding him. I finally got Levi to let me hold him without crying this week. That was, got to know Levi a little bit this week. This morning we're going to get to know Levi in the New Testament. After this, Luke chapter 5 verse 27, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a great company of, uh, there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This morning I want to break this passage down in four ways. First thing I want you to see here is the path that Jesus outlines for Levi. The Romans collected their taxes through a system called tax farming. They would assess a district, a fixed tax figure. Then they would sell the rights to collect that tax to the highest bidder. The buyer would then hand over the assessed figure to the Roman government at the end of the year. So Levi had apparently won the rights to collect the taxes in this district. And at the end of the year, he had a certain amount that he had to give to the Romans. But anything that he collected over that amount was his to keep. And as a result, tax collectors were often known for being extortionists. They, they would assess large tax burdens, lay those burdens on the people. And of course, they were hated for it. The Jews hated the tax collectors not only because they were extortionists, but also because they aligned themselves with the Roman government over the Jewish people. And so Levi was hated by the Jews not only for being a tax collector, but also because of his alignment with the Romans. The Jewish Talmud classified tax collectors as robbers. They were considered the scum of Jewish society. To be a tax collector was to be on par with being an adulterer or a prostitute or to be associated along with pagan Gentiles in the Jewish mind. In fact, to find an honest tax collector was such a rare thing that one Roman writer remarked in amazement that he saw a monument to a tax collector, to an honest tax collector. That's how rare honest tax collectors were that they actually would have built a monument to honor the honest ones. And so Levi was the lowest of low. And one day, as he's sitting in his tax booth, along comes Jesus. You know the story well. The scripture here tells us that Jesus saw Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now that word Saul and Jesus is fixing his gaze on Levi because Jesus has a purpose in mind for Levi's life. And Jesus simply says to Levi, follow me. And the amazing thing is Levi did. Now we know Levi by his other name. Perhaps Jesus named him Matthew later. We don't really know, but this Levi and Matthew are likely the same person. And Levi or Matthew leaves behind everything and he begins to follow Jesus. Jesus outlined the path for Levi's life. The path was, follow me, Levi. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for the day when Jesus came along in my life and said to me, follow me. Amen. You see, Jesus not only sought me out, but he called me to come and follow him. Jesus is the seeking Savior. Now, sometimes we like to talk about how we found God. I remember the day when I found Jesus. The reality is, we didn't find Jesus. Jesus found us. Amen. It wasn't us who first started seeking him. He first started seeking us. 
It's what we call prevenient grace or preceding grace. It's the grace that goes before and calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And without the grace of God going before us and awaking us to our need, we would have remained hopelessly bound in our sin. But thank God for prevenient grace. Jesus called to Levi and he invited him to come and follow him and Levi did. But just think about this path that Jesus laid out for Levi. He laid it out just simply by saying, follow me. And if you follow someone, you don't always know where they're going to go. It cost Levi everything to follow Jesus. He had to leave behind the tax booth. And you see, true discipleship always costs. In fact, it costs everything, but it's more valuable than anything that this world has to offer, following Jesus. A lot of people like to talk about how they love Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. But when you look at their life, you don't really see much evidence. But love for Jesus is measurable. If you love Jesus, you can measure that reality through your obedience to his word. Don't just give mere lip service to saying, oh, I love Jesus, I'm following Jesus. Well, if you're following Jesus, that means you're living the way he wants you to live. That's why the apostle John said everyone that believes... that Jesus is, is the Christ, has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and, and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. You see, we just follow Jesus, and it's not a hard way. If you think it's a hard way, it's probably because you don't really love Him. Yes, it costs to follow Jesus. But when you realize that following Jesus is more valuable than anything that it costs, it's an easy way. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, is what Jesus said. And Jesus called Levi to follow the path that he was walking. And so notice then what happens next. In verse 29, we're told about a party that takes place. Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. It's been said that Levi's response really demonstrates what true repentance and discipleship, entrance into discipleship, is all about. Because when someone finds Jesus and they realize they've been accepted by God into his family... The most natural thing in the world to want to do is to want others to come with you and follow Jesus for themselves. One of the problems we have as Christians, as believers, and we'll talk a little bit about this in a moment, but when you first become a Christian, you've got a lot of friends who aren't Christians. But over time, your friends become Christians. And so you're surrounded by Christians all the time, and you don't have friends who aren't Christians. And so your passion for reaching others tends to wane as a result. 
But Levi here throws a party for all his tax collector friends. And Jesus is the featured guest. Apparently, Levi wanted to reach his friends and show them this Jesus that he was now following. The great preacher J.C. Ryle, he said this. He said, it is, it is a far more important event than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. It's being made a king and a priest forevermore. It's being provided for both in time and eternity. It is being adopted into the noblest and richest of all families, the family of God. No wonder why Levi threw a party, because he realized his life had been transformed. And I wonder sometimes if we've lost the amazement of what God has done for us. It might be good for us every once in a while to stop and throw a party and remember what Jesus has done. Amen. So Levi threw a party. But that led to the problem. You see, the problem was there were some old Pharisees hanging around. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I don't know how you feel about parties. Now, if you're an introvert, parties, you know, you may not like the idea of a party too much because we tend to associate parties with small talk. And introverts, we like to sit down and have a good discussion with somebody. Well, however you feel about parties, one thing that is certain, and that is Jesus celebrates when sinners are redeemed. He loves a good party for redeemed sinners. In fact, what we're going to find out later on in the book of Luke is that Jesus has a real problem, had a real problem with the Pharisees who forgot the importance of celebrating when lost things are found. The Pharisees here grumble at Jesus' disciples. You're eating with tax collectors? Don't you know better, disciples? You're eating with these sinners, these sinful people? How can you associate with such ungodly, unholy people? Don't you know God's called you to be holy? Don't you realize that if you hang around that type, they're going to rub off on you? You're going to compromise and you're going to become just like them. Ooh, some of us have heard that before, haven't we? What the Pharisees missed in their lack of concern for sinners and their lack of mercy is that it was that was what was actually distancing them from God. They were supposed to be the experts on the scriptures. But in their concern for outward things, they misunderstood what the scriptures actually taught. You remember in the Old Testament, the prophet Micah stated the Lord's case against Israel. And he concludes God's case against Israel and he says this. He says, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? 
Now let me ask you, does the Pharisee's attitude here sound anything like Micah 6 and what God requires? But before we're too hard on the Pharisees, let's take a look at our own lives. Do our lives show forth the justice, the kindness, the humility that God requires, that Jesus demonstrated, that the Spirit enables us to show within our own lives? If not, my question is, is the holiness we claim to possess really holiness at all? In a parallel account to this in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew records an extra line of what Jesus said here. Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 9, he says, go and learn what this means. And he quotes now from Hosea. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Evidently, Hosea's words were so important to Jesus that, and they were at the heart of Jesus' mission that he came to call those who were sinners to repentance, not those that he, who thought they were righteous. That he also quotes it in the Sermon on the Mount. On the Mount. And in the, he seems to reference it when he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see, Jesus isn't interested in just external, superficial religion. What Jesus desires is that our hearts be transformed and that we truly love him from the inside out and that we love others as well. And so he says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. There's a lot of people who are really proud of all the sacrifice they make for Jesus. Just ask them. They'll tell you. But what Jesus desires is not sacrifice. What he desires is mercy. So let me ask you a question this morning. How do we end up like Pharisees? In Matthew 23, Jesus tells the Pharisees, he calls them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, everything looks okay, but on the inside, they're full of death and decay. How do we end up like that? The Pharisees, as I've told you, and we'll talk about the Pharisees a lot as we go through Luke, because they come up a lot. But the Pharisees were were very careful about external things. They were very careful about washing your hands, keeping ceremonies. And outside things can be important, but first must be the inside must be purified. But we like lists. We like to know. Check off the list. And everything's okay. And the Pharisees could check off all the lists, but inside, they were a long ways away from God. The spirit of the law matters, not just a letter. God wants to do a work in our hearts that transforms us. Oswald Chambers put it this way. He said, other teachers tell of certain things to suppress, certain rules and regulations to obey. Jesus Christ never gives us rules and regulations. 
Try, for instance, to use the Sermon on the Mount as a series of rules and regulations, and you'll find you cannot do it. They are truths that can only be interpreted by a new spirit which Jesus Christ puts in. Jesus teaches that he can alter our mainspring of action. He does not teach us to curb or suppress the wrong disposition. He does not, he doesn't, he does not even give us something to counteract it. He gives us a totally new disposition. You see, Jesus isn't interested in us just doing outward things and adhering to a list of rules. What he's really concerned about is you and I being lovers of righteousness. So let me go back to my question. How do you end up like a Pharisee? How do you end up like one? One man wrote a book called Accidental Pharisees. And I've told you before that Pharisees began with good intentions. They had good intentions. But by Jesus' day, they were far from being the holy people that God intended them to be. Or that they desperately pretended to be. So Larry Osborne put it this way. He said, the journey to becoming an accidental Pharisee usually starts out innocently enough. It's often triggered by an eye-opening event. Sometimes it's a mission trip, a conference, or a powerful new book. Sometimes it's a small group experience that makes everything else feel like you've just been playing church. Or perhaps it's a new Bible teacher who opens your eyes to things you've never seen before. So you step out on faith. You make some big changes. You clean up areas of sin and compromise. You add new spiritual disciplines as you excitedly race off toward the front of the following Jesus line. But as you press forward, it's inevitable that you begin to notice that some people lag behind. And it's at this point that your personal pursuit of holiness can morph into something dangerous. A deepening sense of frustration with those who don't share your passionate pursuit of holiness. This is the critical juncture. If you allow your frustration to turn into disgust and disdain for people you've left behind, you'll end up on a dangerous detour. Instead of becoming more like Jesus, you'll become more like his archenemies, the Pharisees of old looking down on others, confident in your own righteousness. This, of course, is a terrible place to be. But actually, it can get worse if you continue further down the path of contempt for those who fail to keep up. You'll end up in a place of arrogance. Fewer and fewer people will measure up to your definition of a genuine disciple. Inevitably, being right will become more important than being kind, gracious, or loving. Thinning the herd will become more important than expanding the kingdom. I just feel like I need to read those two sentences again. Inevitably, being right will become more important than being kind, gracious, or loving. Thinning the herd will become more important than expanding the kingdom. Unity will take a back seat to uniformity. And your metamorphosis will be complete. You will have arrived at a place you never intended to go. You'll be a full-fledged Pharisee. Accidental, no doubt, but a Pharisee, nonetheless. Anybody seen that happen before? You see, the Pharisees had a problem with Jesus. 
And they had a problem with his disciples associating with those they considered to be sinful outcasts. But the real problem was in the Pharisees themselves. And so Jesus outlines for them the reason why he came. He gives them what I call his plan. Jesus answered them in verse 33, 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The reason Jesus came was to call sin-sick people to himself because he is the great physician who is able to heal the disease of our hearts. And when Jesus heals the desire, the, the disease of our hearts, he's then able to begin to work on the rest of the areas of our life. But first, we must allow his spirit to do his work in our own hearts. And that work is ongoing and continual as Jesus shapes us and molds us into his image. He wants to make us a holy people, but that holiness must come from a heart that desires him more than anything else, that wants to be righteous, that wants to be pure, that wants to possess his character, not just a mere external veneer hiding the sickness within, but a true transformation from the inside out. Amen. Now, one of our ideas of holiness... It's separation, and it's true. To be holy does mean to be set apart. But if you think of holiness merely or primarily as separation, you'll end up isolating yourself from the very people that God has called you to reach. What's fascinating to me, I don't know if fascinating is the right word, but for lack of a better one right now, fascinating to me, is how upside down the church gets this whole idea. In our zeal for holiness, we resort to all kinds of external list of behaviors that we can and can't do in order to keep ourselves from being corrupted by the world. And God does want us not to be worldly. He wants us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We know that from Romans 12. But what's interesting to me is that the more zealous that we become as individuals or as an organization to be separate from the world, the more zealous organizations become in that pursuit. What happens far too often is the more cover-ups that go on to hide the pollution within. If you don't believe me, just listen to the news. Go home and search Southern Baptist right now. Now, it's easy to cast stones at the Southern Baptist right now, just like it was easy to cast stones at the Catholic Church a while back. But what about our own movement? You see, this approach of doing everything in your power to stay separate from the world 
is actually upside down from what the Bible teaches. In 1 Corinthians 5, and this is important, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. That seems pretty clear. But listen to what he says next. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of this world. In other words, try as you may to stay separate from the sinful people in this world. You can't do it. That's the point. But Paul continues. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one, for what, I have to, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And when I said we've got it upside down, what I meant was so often we're trying to stay separate from these sinful worldly people out there and all the while we're covering up inside the church the corruption inside. What's the church better at? Are we better at keeping our distance from the world outside the church or dealing with sinful people inside the church? I think the answer to that question is pretty evident. And so I think our instinct is upside down. For far too long, we've been, we've been cautious to engage with the lost out there because we're afraid they might corrupt us. But what really corrupts us is not what's out there. What really corrupts us is what's in here. Are you still with me? And so if I'm reading the Bible correctly, we should be far more concerned about sin inside the church. We should be far more concerned about practicing church discipline inside the church than we are trying to keep our distance from those outside the church. But what is our instinct to do? So far too often, all, all it takes is somebody to just, you know, they may be a, a terribly sinful, corrupt, immoral person. All they have to do is say, oh, I'm sorry. And we just say, okay, then, and we cover it up. And eventually that corruption will come out just like it's coming out right now in the Southern Baptist Church. And if we allow that to happen in the Bible Methodist Church, the same exact thing will happen. So what should we be doing? We should be calling sinners to repentance. Sinners within our church are to be called to repentance via church discipline if necessary. Sinners outside our church should be called to repentance by living our lives among them. What we should we be doing with sinners outside our church walls? We ought to be rubbing shoulders with them. We ought to be loving them. We ought to be witnessing with them. We ought to be partying with them. All without sinning with them why because that's what jesus did what did jesus do when he was here he's rubbing shoulders with sinful people all the time he's going to their parties he's hanging out with them why is he doing it 
Because he's calling them to repentance. He's not becoming like the world. And that's a danger. Don't, don't be naive. It is a danger. But we do all of that without sinning. Because that's what Jesus did. He didn't come to call self-righteous people who think they have no need of a Savior. He came for people who realize their brokenness, their sinfulness, their emptiness without Him. That's who He came for. He came for people like Levi. So how about you? Are you following Jesus? Or are you filled with self-righteousness an external veneer that only covers up the corruption within. Jesus calls us to follow him in wholehearted obedience because following Jesus is the best way to live. And I'm going to quote Oswald Chambers one more time and I'm closing. Chambers said, Discipleship means personal, passionate devotion to a person. Our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a vast difference between devotion to a person and devotion to principles or to a cause. Our Lord never proclaimed a cause. He proclaimed personal devotion to himself. There's a vast difference. There's a difference between devotion to a person and a devotion to principles or to a cause. Our Lord never proclaimed a cause. He proclaimed personal devotion to himself. To be a disciple is to be a devoted love slave of the Lord Jesus. Many of us who call ourselves Christians are not devoted to Jesus Christ. And how right he was. But Christ calls us to complete devotion to himself. To where we take up our cross and we follow Jesus. Where we leave behind the tax booth. We leave behind the sinful life. We leave behind the extortion we leave behind the thievery and we take up our cross and we follow Jesus. We leave behind the sinful life because we no longer want to be a people who live according to this world because we've been healed by the great physician of our souls. The healer is here. His name is Jesus. And I'm thankful this morning he's still in the business of healing sin-sick hearts. But we've got to come to him and say, Jesus, without you, I'm wretched and vile and sinful and sick. We must not be like the Pharisees who pretended on the outside, but inwardly were far from God. I want you to stand with me. The healer's here this morning. If you have a need, the altar's open for you. I don't want to just play church. I don't want to pretend. I don't want to go through the motions. I want Jesus to be present in our church. I want Jesus to be present in my life. And that only happens with wholehearted devotion to following Jesus on his way and not our own. So if you're here this morning, the altar's open. I'm going to close in prayer. If you need to pray, the altar's always open. Jesus.
I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for your grace and your mercy that you extend to sin-sick people who are aware of their condition, who acknowledge their condition, who confess their condition. By faith, they take up their cross and they begin following you. And Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning, maybe those that are watching online, you know every heart, you know every life. Lord, you know that we're good at putting on a show. We're good at pretending. But help us, Lord, not to pretend. Help us to be real about this and to follow you wholeheartedly, not content with just outward appearances. But Lord, transform us from the inside out and make us into the people you died to make us be. And I pray this in Jesus' strong and powerful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.